0: Hello and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Anyway, so to kind of get us started, um, Ken, as I mentioned, we kind of do this as a, hey, and Jerry, how are you doing this morning? I mean to put you on the spot, but see, you're dressed. got lipstick on and everything, right? Yeah, you got. <laughs> so Looking fine. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So most of y'all know Ken. He's uh, actually been working with Reap, kind of behind the scenes and even in, in front of the camera, if you will, on a national scale. As you know, also, um, I, I thank Ken for getting me involved in Reap. He's the one that called me up and asked me to do the capital market. So thank you very much for that, Keith. As a result of that, You know, we've kind of formed these um, lasting friendships with um, many ones that have been in the class here in Atlanta. So uh, we certainly appreciate that. One of the things that was kind of interesting is yourself, you've probably seen it, where people go to events and seminars and functions and, you know, they walk away and they say, man, I'm going to do this and do that and do this and do that. And then, you know, 90 days later, nothing's happened. Right. So they have all these dreams and aspirations and goals and nothing comes of it. So one thing I found from business coaches I've had over the years is you have to stay engaged, you have to stay plugged in, you have to set some milestones for yourself. And one way to keep yourself accountable for those milestones is to have a group of people that uh, work with you and kind of come together to accomplish a task and, and help move you forward. So I kind of set this up. This was initially my team and, and our pipeline uh, call and I kind of branched it out to include REIT students to kind of look over our shoulder as to what is going on in live deals. And it's kind of morphed into letting it be more about them and what they want to talk about, you know, so that they can continue to pursue their goals in, in CRE. So, uh, so that's kind of where we are with this. And we wanted to have you come on because, you know, obviously you have a very deep well of knowledge as it relates to CRE. I've got a lot of questions from the group as to, Well, where are the opportunities and what's going to happen going forward and where should I position myself for opportunities coming up? You know, I said, instead of answering that question, why don't I bring on a a guru, someone that I even look up to uh, as it relates to the industry. So I appreciate you having, you know, being with us today and uh, sharing with us your thoughts. So I definitely appreciate that. Before I start off, are there any specific questions that anyone has uh, that they want to ask him? Uh, before we go into this, because again, this is informal. Oh, I'm sorry, Kim. Yeah, please let me let you talk. I have
1: yeah, um, just just uh, good morning, everybody, and I just want to uh, take a minute. We had a, a a tremendous tremendous tragedy happen over this weekend, both for uh, the REAP community and for all of the initiatives in commercial real estate for people of color. Eric Yarborough, who is a board member of REAP and uh, an employee of Colliers passed away unexpectedly this weekend of a, a, a massive heart attack. I've known Eric, as as you know, as the executive director of REAP. He was my on my board. I, I worked with him. But I knew Eric probably for 20 years before that. And then after I left REAP, I was working with Eric when I was at the Port Authority and I've still been in contact with Eric. He's been a tremendous voice for everything that the REAP mission is about and everything that My mission is about, in my current role with the Real Estate Executive Council, and I'll be specific about those things. One is um, getting more talent, uh, uh, diverse talent, uh, like all of us, into commercial real estate. He's been a strong voice and advocate for that. And also doing more business with Black businesses and and minority-owned businesses. Eric has never, uh, I shouldn't say never, but he frequently used his access to people in C-suites to say, you should do more for minority businesses. And that's a voice, that's a huge loss for us. And uh, I just wanted to make sure all of you, because he is, is, was a REAP board member, that all of you who are affiliated with REAP are are aware of that. REAP is making a statement that I think has either come out this morning or will be coming out shortly. I'm walking today with a very, very heavy heart as I have been for most of the weekend. So. Uh, I'm sorry to drop that on you Monday morning, but given who, who Eric was in this industry for what all of us are trying to achieve, I thought it's important that you know that. So that being said, I, I, I just before we get to specific questions of me, which um, Joel introduced, and and I'm more than willing to take them. I want to take uh, one minute and explain what what my new role is, since I, I left the executive director position at REAP in February of this year, and I moved into the CEO role at the Real Estate Executive Council. And many of you may have heard of the real estate executive council may have heard me refer to it i have been a board member a founding board member of this organization since uh, it was founded in the early, in 2002 joel had been a member at one point of the real estate executive council we have several members in the atlanta market including michael tabb who i'm sure many of you have interacted with so that is a national trade association of the executives of color and its mission is overlaps with REAPs. But I stepped into this role because as you know, my, my understanding is there are more people of color in this industry than, than we all know individually. And we need some way to be connected and working with each other and working for each other. And that's a community that I advocated for on the REAP side. And Reese just gives me a bigger platform to advocate for that. And yes, Reese is a financial sponsor of REAP and has been a financial sponsor of REAP for multiple years. You know, I in no way have walked away from REAP. In fact, I'm much more interested in everybody who's gone through REAP Becoming eligible to be a member of the Real Estate Executive Council through their achievements and their 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 um, experience in this industry. So I'm sorry to be long-winded, but I just wanted to let people know where I am now. And uh, like I said, to Joel's point, uh, yeah. Any questions? Any comments? Uh, you know, that's why I'm here. And thanks again. Good morning.
0: Yeah. No, Ken, I, I appreciate that. Um... Unfortunately, I didn't know about uh, Eric Garbo. I had just responded back to a post that he had on LinkedIn uh, related to some of the things that he accomplished and uh, you're absolutely right that is a major loss because he was a you know he was spearheading a lot of things related to expanding minority interest in commercial real estate. you know that's that's very very, very sad to hear. so thank you for sharing that but that um, that kind of sat me back in my seat for a minute because that, that's cool. yeah, sorry yeah, yeah that was that's awful to hear. Just one thing real quick. Uh, for you who don't know Kim, like I said, you may have seen his face. You know he's CEO of, of Reese. Um, as you mentioned, I was a member of Reese for, for quite some time. As a matter of fact, back in the real early days, if you remember that, when we were <laughs> back when there was like what, 10 of us maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was man, probably 15 years ago or so. It, it was quite some time ago. No. Yeah, it was really something. But then just briefly, you know, I don't like doing this when people ask me to do it, but can you just give a, a little background on yourself so that um, that might kind of cue some questions in individuals' minds as to why uh, I asked you to be here today and specifically speak on this this subject of where the market is going and the opportunities?
1: Oh, sure. I, you know, I have the uh, native black man's disease. Just give me a mic and I can talk, especially about myself. Um, But yeah, my career, I was a real estate lender. I was on the lending side for the majority of my career. Credit trained at a bank, worked at several, including um, what was then the Chase Manhattan Bank, UBS, GE Capital. At KeyBank, I created their loan syndication department for their commercial real estate group, and I ran that nationally. Um, I moved to MetLife, and I was in charge of pricing for every commercial mortgage MetLife did globally for several years, and then I created a couple other businesses, and at the end, I ran their equity acquisitions team globally, and then I left, started my own consulting firm, and I worked with several financial institutions, uh, and then took on the role at REAP, including uh, where I got more focused on diversity moved into the board authority in a role that was focused on um, to that organization doing more business with um, minority and women-owned businesses. Earlier this year, I was appointed to the board of directors of Newmark Knight Frank, brokerage firm, and I took on this role as CEO of Reese. So that's the short version. Yeah, yeah, that's the short version.
2: I know there's
0: a lot more to it, but all good. I, I appreciate that, Kim, just to kind of give us a snapshot. So, guys, again, I don't I don't want to dominate this conversation, but before we jump in and, and me and Ken kind of go into some specifics, uh, is there anything on your mind that you want to make sure that you get out and ask him uh before we kind of get started? Something that you've been thinking about over the time that you knew we were gonna have him come on. If you, yes, you can unmute your mic, and since I don't see faces, I just gotta let you speak up. Okay, all right. Well nobody's pulling up at this point. So Ken, let's dive into it a little bit. As you know, uh, CRE is going through a a major transition right now. You have a lot of asset classes that are being beat to death, uh, such as retail, such as restaurants, such as uh, things of that sort. Then you have others that are kind of in in the twilight zone. You know, if you look at commercial real estate as it relates to offices, for an example, more and more people working at home, you kind of wonder if the demand for uh, office space is going to be what it used to be. And I think specifically about the World Trade Center site, you know, where you have all these huge buildings going up and you wonder what the occupancy is going to be on those buildings. Obviously, lower occupancy means lower values. How do you think this is, is going to shake out? Let's say if we look at asset classes and we, we kind of start somewhere to be specific, what do you think is going to happen with office? Are there going to be any opportunities that you see on the back side of this as it relates to office? Yeah, um,
1: as, as with most people, um, at this point, my crystal ball is still a little hazy, but I, uh, I have another fatal flaw, which is if you ask me a question, I'll give you an answer. It may not be right, but I'll give you an answer. I think it's right, but uh, I, it may not be right. Um, so yeah, let's talk about office space. You know, the, the, the basic future for office space rides on the question of human nature do humans need to be together right it's kind of that simple as we've all learned over the past several months we can be productive working from home which i refer to as work from anywhere because you know zoom i could be on the beach uh this is not the beach but i could be (laughs) i could be anywhere and and still be productive and and the more and more managers are happy for that that yes They've gone through this transition this year, and people are working from home or telecommuting, whatever you want to call it, and productivity hasn't dropped precipitously. In fact, in some places, productivity may even, it's certainly equal to what it was before, and if not, it may have gone up. But they talk to those managers, and they start to realize, well, at some point, I need to identify who's going to replace me at some point i need to identify who who deserves a promotion and who deserves who who deserves to be the manager of this group going forward and who has the soft skills that would be required to manage an organization or manage my organization or my team and you can't get that over work everybody working on microsoft teams or zoom or webex or whatever if you have new people that you've just hired and you're trying to train them yes you can get their productivity, but you can't get necessarily a full sense of how much they're grasping what the organization is about, what's the culture, what's the, what the full scope of the job is so that you can mentor them appropriately and, and, and give them feedback and, and help them grow. And so the being remote is okay for productivity, but is it okay for management? And so the, the 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 minimum is that you're going to have some type of a hybrid, which is, okay, you have the freedom to work remotely, but at least once a week, once a month, once every two weeks, um, we need to come in and, and, and have a meeting face-to-face and, and spend half a day together or something so that I know who you are so I can advocate for you or make the right decisions for the organization about you as a resource. And so because of that, there will always be some demand for for office space, right? Because you need some place to have those meetings, need some place to have that point of connectivity. And absent a COVID virus, why would you not be there as often as you had been there in the past, right? So I'm not saying everything's gonna snap back. I, I think we all understand that the demand for office is going to be affected but I don't think it's going to, it, I don't think COVID is eradicating the demand for office. There'll be changes, offices, uh, people will be spaced out more, people will be in the office less, but office space will still be required in, uh, in many industries in the future. So, so that's what I'm hearing from, you know, members of many different trade associations uh, and many different companies around this country. So.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. What do you think about the uh, the WeWork model and why that got crushed so bad? And do you think that that would even come back uh, post COVID? Any any thoughts on that? So the WeWork
1: model actually is it, it, it is the future. WeWork had many other issues that affected it's crash and burn one was that its valuation turned out to not be sustainably justifiable or justifiable or sustainable or whatever it is and they were trying to do an ipo and and uh, once the news once the news start turned against them it just it started to snowball Snowball. The other challenge we work has, and, and at REAP we had our offices were in WeWork buildings, so I'm very familiar with them. And um, I had a friend who used to be in Atlanta, Craig Robinson, who was one of the senior people at WeWork, and he's a member of the Real Estate Executive Council. One of the challenges we work has is that their their, build, their their footprint of a lot of their buildings is small. Now they may have the whole building, but the elevators are small. The, the stairwells are small, particularly in New York, I assume it might be the same in many cities. So they don't, to socially distance in a WeWork location is a challenge. And so that's something they'll have to overcome. But again, absent the coronavirus, yeah, WeWork has spaces where you can come and go. They have spaces where you can meet. So yeah, instead of taking a full office floor, Uh, Let's just have a membership to WeWork and when we need a conference room, we'll all go and meet in the WeWork conference room for half a day and then go our separate. We need to take our laptops to tables down in the open space. We can work there or we can go back wherever we work from. Uh, So I think the model is something that corporations and firms are going to embrace. I think they're working through their cost structure and their financial structure to get from a $47 billion valuation to something that is more viable and understandable in in, in most people's minds.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I I spoke with the group before about how I have certain clients that have followed a, a WeWork model in industries that appear to be getting crushed and they're actually blossoming. And one thing that they've been doing is taking these office spaces and cutting them up into mini suites. So it is almost like an executive suite model, but they've been able to triple the amount of revenue per square foot by doing that. And because of the social distancing issues, especially when you're dealing with uh, hair salons and things of that sort, you're not in a big open space where the municipality says you have to limit the people in that space. You know, So these women and individuals can come and work and bring an individual into their private space and everybody can do that, and everybody can stay in business and continue to make money. So it's a, it's a twist on WeWork, but it's been actually working out real well uh, from what I'm seeing right here on the ground you know, with individuals. So it's kind of interesting. i got a softball question for you. What, what do you think is the future of retail? <laughs> well,
1: one of the things I didn't mention, and I think you're aware, is that I was on the board of uh, trustees of the ICSC. And so I, I, I meet with their trustees three times a year and we go through retail and we've been doing that. The discussions for the past 12 years have been about the retail apocalypse. We, we, I say we, we as retail have survived the news cycle going from retail is dead to omni channel. Where it's like, yes, OK, you can, as long as you have some bricks and mortar and, and an online strategy, they could complement each other. And most retailers are embracing that. Prior to COVID, it was pretty well understood that there has been no pure play online retailer that has been profitable. All online retailers, all retailers that started as online retailers, eventually had to put in brick and mortar stores in order to round out their offering to the public, even if it's just a matter of showcasing their wares. Uh, So, but so the Apple and stores like that, yeah, yeah, Apple, Amazon, Warby Parker, uh, Bonobos, uh, they all have stores. The ones that are don't have stores are not profitable. It's a very clear distinction. I mean, so that had been the evolution to omni-channel and and everybody understands that that's probably the future. You gotta do both. You gotta be able to deliver for those that want to do online, but you also need to have some place where people can interact with somebody, basically. That's really what it comes down to. Now you have COVID. So the challenge is, are people gonna spend time in stores? Are people gonna spend time in malls? And that's just another evolution for for retail. Okay, then instead of coming into the store, you just order it beforehand, you drive up, and there's a delivery point, and they they bring it to you and put it in your car, and you drive away. Or you don't, and you have it delivered Amazon style. You know, retail is just a distribution channel for the human nature of consumerism. (laughs) Is (laughs) <laughs> is <laughs> consumerism going away? I, I just made that up, so you. Yeah,
0: you, yeah, you, I'm, I'm trying to coin that. I
1: that came on the fly there, um, but consumerism is not going to go away. It's just a matter of what is the interface and what is the conduit, and that has always evolved from Sears and J.C. catalogs to you know Amazon and uh, etsy online <laughs>
0: yeah you know that, that's interesting you say that because um even with all of the online delivery services that are out there uh, i know in my own household i can't seem to keep my wife out the stores it's like just order the stuff right just, just order right we don't need to go to the store <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's like she just just had this thing in her head but she's got to get to the store you know and I, and I think it's that consumerism as you say uh, where people just got to get out and, and somehow mingle with people, even if it is six feet apart, you know. <laughs> it's part of the cosmic makeup of, of people, I guess, you know, so something I'm dealing with, <laughs> so. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, yeah, so, and it's tough in New York because you just sometimes want to just get out and walk down the street, you know. It's, I grew up in Manhattan, like, you know, we're not far from where you live, and. It's just, um, it's a different environment. You know, you just want to get out and walk down the street, you know? So it's uh, it's something amazing from that standpoint. So anything that anyone has uh, come up with that they want to share real quick or we'll keep moving down the road with this uh, discussion. Um, it's been good so far. I wish actually you could know, have use the hand raise function, but that's what I use on a lot of my other calls. But um, all right, don't see anything at this point. So we'll keep Actually,
2: moving. good oh, morning. <laughs>
0: Good morning, good morning.
2: Thanks for speaking up. Yes. Uh, No problem. This has been great. Thank you so much for Kim this morning. I want to say that I really like the phrase about uh, the retail distribution channel for consumerism. I think that helps to look at retail and what it can be from a different aspect from just what's being put out by the media to really think about how you can fill so many spaces. I also have a question going back to office. I'm doing office leasing and things have really changed. It's challenging. And one question I have is about the suburban move, the move to suburbia. I have some office spaces in the suburbs and I am noticing that some companies that probably wouldn't look at the space are looking at the space. And I think it's because like the largest space in that building is like 4,000 square feet do you think that is a move that companies are taking even to like smaller areas, suburban areas?
0: And Deneen, is that you?
2: No, that was Monica. <laughs> <laughs> I know that awesome. voice anywhere. This is Deneen.
0: <laughs> okay, all right, so that's what we're saying. If you can, change the name uh, so we know who you are. Monica, thanks for participating. Let me jump out the way. Ken, you, you got the floor. <laughs> suburban. Is
1: the flavor or, or, or moving out of the central core is clearly the flavor of the quarter, if not the flavor of 2020, as people try to adjust to what the COVID has, has, has put upon us. But we all know the challenges in suburban and particularly, you know, in Atlanta, right? I mean, uh, I was at MetLife. MetLife's offices in Atlanta, real estate offices in Atlanta for many years were in Alpharetta. I would come to Atlanta, I wouldn't go to that office. It was just too far out of the way for me to get there and get back and meet with clients anywhere else in town. And so they they moved their office, I don't know, seven, 10 years ago uh, into Buckhead, which was a lot more essential. But what I see foresee happening in the near term or in the midterm is, yes, office will become someplace where... Okay, we want our people to have some place to go. We don't need them to necessarily come all the way downtown to our central office. So let's create some satellite offices, you know, instead of taking 8000 square feet or 10,000 square feet in one one super location. Let's take two or 3000 square feet in two or three locations and allow people to who, who, for whom that is geographically acceptable to go to that space when they need to go someplace other than working from home. And we can still have the connectivity across those spaces. To, should we need to have a full team meeting, but we don't force people from the south side of Atlanta to have to commute to Alpharetta, which is impossible. Excuse my language, but it's, it's this is not really feasible. And so, I do see that I, they, I do foresee firms taking satellite spaces so that they can be geographically convenient to their employees and still be telephonically or telecommunicatively um, connected. And I, I do think that will drive demand in suburban office space uh, for the mid to near term. Um, once there is a a vaccine or something for this virus, I wonder how how sustainable that dispersion um, from the central core
2: will be long-term. Thank you. That was very insightful.
0: Right, good points. Anyone else have anything else on your mind before we move to some other topics? Okay. All right. Well, sounds good. So we appreciate that, Ken, giving a little additional insight as regards the um, escape to suburbia. You know, is that a a sustainable trend? And uh, we know that real estate is is cyclical. And we've seen that happen uh, even in New York where you have people moving to Long Island and then everything shifts back and it kind of goes back and forth. And, um, you know, gentrification always plays into that. But that's um, that's quite interesting. Now, along that line, this is something that um, myself and and Chris Crump is helping us with a uh, project down here in Atlanta. What, what's your thoughts on condos? What do you think the future is of that, or do you think uh, multifamily is the is the greater play? Well, I mean, that's that's actually a, probably a pretty easy question to answer. But uh, what, what's your overall thought on condominiums at, at this point in time in this market?
1: Well, I, I mean, home ownership. Let's let's start there. Right is. I think it's been on the decline it it has been for the past sixty years or so essentially been a uh, driven by the tax tax policies, and those tax benefits of home ownership have been decreasing i feel like at an increasing rate over the past fifteen years, um which I believe is a large part of the reason for the decline in home ownership, not to mention the uh, the, the fact that people lost a lot of money is in the global financial crisis of 08, 09, um, through, through home, owning homes, so people are burned. But So I think the, the the issue with condos, I don't think there's anything endemically challenging with, with, with condos. I, I think that people will live in multifamily, then they'll live in... Structures that are attached to each other, so you know that that that's not the issue to me. The issue is is it cost justifiable? is it economic, and is the government going to continue to give you the tax benefit that allowed you to own a home at after tax basis at less than what it would cost you to rent, and if so, then I think that's that's your answer again. The, uh, the last thing I would add is it's a supply and demand issue. If uh, Regardless if, of tax policy or anything else I've said, if, if there are more people looking for places to live than there are places to live, then some percentage of them will figure out how to make condos work. The flip side is if you feel like condos are not mainstream in your market, Now, see, in New York, condos and co-ops are mainstream. You know, people don't think, people don't, in New York City, you don't buy a single family house. There's none none to buy. So if you're going to buy, you're going to buy a condo. And in Atlanta, you know, you may be like, oh, I'll buy a house. Oh, this condo is nice. But I was really thinking of a house. So if if, if it's not mainstream, then I would constantly monitor how many of them are, are out there as a percent of the number of buyers in the market. Right. You, you will never you never want to have more condos for sale than you have homes for sale because there just aren't that many condo buyers versus home buyers ever in the market, from my experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. And yeah, we we've. Uh, well, that's a whole other story for another day. But yeah, we completely agree <laughs> with you on that. <laughs> so but it's true that there, there are condo markets and they're not condo markets and really. The main ones that you have is, uh, you know, you got New York, Miami, Chicago, you know, D.C. to a lesser degree. But, you know, that's pretty much it. You know, the the rest of the country is uh, usually more single family. So kind of an interesting dynamic from that standpoint. Let's take the last few minutes before we wrap up. Just wanted to kind of talk about opportunities in the marketplace. If you were a REIT student and you've kind of, you know, been tinkering, tinkering around in the industry, you're really looking to get your feet. Uh, set solidly in the marketplace. What area would you start in, and where do you see the opportunities uh, at this point in time? If you were, you know, getting going as a minority and trying to get in the CRE?
1: Well, yeah, uh, yeah, you just you just clouded my crystal ball even more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the marketplace right now, from my perspective, there there's no clarity. There, the risks are. the way I used to put it when I was on investment committee at MetLife is are the risks underwritable? Can you underwrite the risk that you're looking at? Um, And so sometimes you'd be in a market and you could tell, hey, they can't build this much more and job growth has been positive and it'll continue to be positive. So the risks were underwritable. Mm -hmm. Well, right now, I don't know what demand will be in almost any product type in the fourth quarter of 2020, not to mention all of 21 and 22. So whatever position you take is going to be kind of speculative uh, because maybe people will stay in apartments in the cities or maybe they'll move to the suburbs in houses or apartments. I don't know which. Maybe retail will evolve, or maybe COVID will change this consumerism dynamic in a way that we can't foresee, and retail will just fall away. People will only order and, and deal with essentials. We haven't even talked about hotels. The play may be not in the real estate, but in the things that affect the desirability of the real estate. So for example, hotels need to be cleaned better and more often than before. So if you have some ultrasonic, you know, Clorox, Lysol (laughs) room cleaner, that's going to be in demand. It's going to be demand in office buildings. It's going to be demand in retail buildings. It's going to be demand in, in, in hotels. If you have something that accommodates or works with social distancing, then that's something to think about for the near future. But the flip side is, almost across the board, with the exception of certain like data centers and maybe industrial, retail valuations have, have moved down. So as you've seen in the stock market, that generally designate, or is an indication of an entry point, some time to get in go long and ride it back up. Uh, and so despite everything I said, prefacing this, I'm a believer that if you see something that's now trading at 40% less than what it was trading at on Christmas, there's probably a profit in there. You know, it may not get back to its value at Christmas, but it may get back. It may go up 10 or 20% from where it is today. If you can get 10 or 10 or 20% with your money sitting in a money market account or, or a bank account, then keep it there. So otherwise um, you put 20% returns in front of me. I'm a gobbler. I'm taking it right then and there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that's, just interesting. You know, one thing about retail, which is, uh is an interesting dynamic is what type of tenants you have often plays into the success of that. One thing that we found is facilities that provide the necessities for people, such as grocery stores, certain things like that, as opposed to maybe just the wing shop, you know, but things that are essential for human consumption, uh, those things tend to do pretty well. So to your point, while it feels like retail is dead in a lot of ways, If you were to acquire a property where you have one of those type of essential businesses, maybe even a Walgreens or, you know, some type of a medical facility in the center, uh, as time goes on, you can always replace that with something else and and increase that value. But for the short term, uh, if you can buy it at a 40% discount, you know, in the stocks, we call that buying the dip. And that's uh, really what you're describing, you know, buy the dip and then ride it back up. Of course, you got to have money to, to float that dip if you can do it, but, you know that's all about the, the basis, or so maybe buy and sell
1: the outposts So other people's money, other people's money.
0: <laughs> average it <enough>, up, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, no,
1: no not, and, and, uh, and don't don't to your point about essentials and discount stores. Yeah, ninety nine cent discount, yeah. even you know dollar Walmart. That's yeah, yeah the dollar stores. They they are they're just look at what those stocks have done this year. Their their sales are are, are going gangbusters.
0: Yeah, they're really resilient. That, that's a good point. Thanks for bringing that up. Hospitality, you know, we just touched on it briefly, but um, like you said, it's it's uh, what do you think is going to happen with a lot of these hotels? I've I've heard conversations of them flipping the condos and then multifamily. Uh, are you seeing more of that in the city?
1: Oh, in the city, no, okay. no, no. Um, the the city is, and I would say this, I would expect this for many cities. Um. From a, a hospitality perspective, they'll snap back. Um, eventually, I mean, they may not have as many conventions mm-hmm. um, as they had in the past, but there will be tourism again. And uh, so the the drivers. Uh, and then we had Leslie Hale from RLJ um, Hospitality spoke to the uh, the Rex program, which we ran last last week for high school students, and she she said, you know, there's Business travel, there's tourism travel, and there's convention travel. Those are the three drivers of hotel and uh, the hotel business. And tourism will eventually probably come back. Business travel probably will mostly come back, not fully. Uh, neither back fully, but it's the convention side that is really the question mark, and that will probably take the longest to come back. And so. Hotels that cater to the first two, business and tourism, they'll probably be okay. Hotels that cater to conventions, those are the ones that are going to struggle. And if you think about it, those are the ones that are least convertible to another use.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Because of just the way they're built, it will be hard to, to do that, you know. But that's, that's actually a very good point. So if you were... I guess, you know, I asked this before, you, you made a good point about um, using other people's money, maybe looking at, at retail. Uh, are there any other asset classes that you would jump on as a uh, REIT student trying to really get their, their feet going um, at this point? Anything? in
1: I believe for, for multiple reasons, you always start in multifamily. It is the most easy, it's a, the easiest to underwrite in terms of its local dynamics. Mm-hmm. You can figure out how competitive your rent is versus its pure set. Um, you can make improvements that can be incremental to your rent at, with with low, little amounts of capital. And it has the most about of uh, capital available both in terms of debt and equity. So that will go back to my, my other people's money. Other people, you can get other people to co-invest with you on the equity side, and banks and Fannie and Freddie are always out there on the debt side. So I think multifamily is is where you want to start. You can find eight units, you can find twenty units, you can find two thousand units, um, depending on what you're looking to find. So you can you can determine the level, the scale you want to operate at, as opposed to any other property type. Now maybe retail, you could you can find single use retail or small strip centers or big malls but retail i think it's just fraught with the much more risk it's harder to underwrite in this environment whereas multifamily i think you can get a sense as to you know we're close to a campus are so the students going to live off campus yes okay i mean you can figure out the dynamics around multifamily a lot more easily these days yeah yeah no that's that's a very good
0: point i was thinking the same thing especially a uh, small multifamily, there's an opportunity for a smaller investor to jump in there. You can buy those properties for less than a million bucks. Um, sometimes the financing gets a little bit harder. As you know, under a million dollars, uh, you might have less capability. Um, and the cost of capital will be a little bit higher. But those deals are still out there. And the amount of money you got to raise to get in is a whole lot less. So, you know, you can generally do those deals with friends and family capital. So that's uh, that's certainly a way to go. All right, so REAP students. uh Ken, you know, we certainly appreciate your time and and all your feedback. Let's get a couple of comments from uh, those that have been listening to us. And, you know, what are your thoughts? Uh, We've got a few minutes left with Ken here. Anything jumping off in your mind that um, you want to make sure is covered today? You know, I get these emails from everybody. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. Well, here's your chance. Right? (laughs) You asked for it. Here we go. So anything come to mind? All right everybody's
2: hiding behind a camera Hi. all right who
0: we got chris what's up chris
3: hey what's going on i mean my question is more about the current state of the market and um with lease payments obviously being missed or reduced how long can that really last i mean obviously they don't have a new package a stimulus package out as of yet and that expires at the end of the month i assume that everyone in Congress will get their act together and have that in the next week and a half. or But who knows? I mean, I don't know. So from a a lender perspective, since you were a lender, you know, you guys have given forgiveness. How long can that forgiveness go? Because it looks like we might be in this for a while. You
0: talking about a particular asset class or just...
3: Overall. I mean, in general, I mean, you, if, if we're talking retail, I mean, if you just opened up a restaurant, there's no way that you are you have no money to pay your lease payment. So maybe they give you a reprieve for three months. I mean, but if you're not going to have a, a vaccine until next year, now you're talking about eight, nine months, you know, so I'm, I'm just trying to get an idea of um, kind of a worst case scenario from a lending perspective, because how many workouts are there, you know, what kind of percentage of workouts are we looking at going forward um, with with these tenant with, with their tenants?
0: What do you
3: think, uh, That That's part of the foggy
1: part of the crystal ball, oh, is sorry. that we if you tell businesses you can't do business, then they can't pay rent. And the Real Estate Roundtable is really working legislatively on this uh, across uh, all the Capitol Hill, because that's one thing to protect the tenants, you know, whether it's retail or or, or evicting homeowners or mm-hmm. or uh, apartment dwellers. But then what happens to the landlord uh, if they don't have cash flow? What happens to the lender if the landlord doesn't have cash flow? All of these are contract-based, right? A lease yeah. is a contract. A, a mortgage is a contract, a, a promissory note. Is not. And so we're walking into a, a, a pandemic-induced contract nightmare where – Essentially, the government is going to have to make uh, decisions unless the government just gives money, continues to just put money in people's hands to make money flow so these contracts can be, uh, can stay valid, then the government's going to have to be the arbitrator as to what contract clauses are enforceable and what aren't, and that is a prospect that I haven't spoken to a lot of lawyers about, but I'm sure they're they're saying we didn't address this in law school. <laughs> okay. And we know that we know that they didn't address it in government school either. And nobody addressed it in economics. So yeah, we're staring into the abyss. If we can't get to a point where businesses can be viable in terms of revenue and and paying their 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 liabilities or their, their at least their obligations then it looks like at some point it all comes crashing down
0: yeah a valid point chris did that answer your question yeah kind uh, of you know like you said the crystal ball is foggy so we're staring into the abyss i mean it's like how do you answer that it's uh it's a tough question so but i think you knew that going in
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean the one the one, the one, the one thing I, the one thing I will add is that the regulators do have the ability to give lenders the ability to be more lenient without having to qualify the loans or classify the loans, and so that if 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 the regulators don't force the bank, the lender's hands, then you create some 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 leniency in the system. But if lenders are sitting there saying, hey, this is 90 days past due, and I can't have a whole portfolio of 90 days past due because I, I, it, it messes up my capital ratios, then their hands are forced and they got to start taking action. And that's where you get a world of workouts and that just snowballs in the wrong
0: direction. Yeah, but that, that's part of the problem also, because uh, if you look back to the crisis of 08, 09, it was the other side of that where all these institutions didn't want all that bad debt on their books. So they gave a lot of forbearances and everything else, but there's no way the government can float all of this. I mean, it seems like it's going to have to be worked out between the parties, you know, the contract holders. So, you know, it's, it's a tough situation. It looks like we're headed back down that path. Unfortunately, you know, we did have a statement here from Q green. Let me try to read this. It says, given the rise and focus on social responsibility by corporations where you are seeing the greatest, where are you seeing the greatest opportunities for POC and CRE? Uh, what should we be pushing for from corporations locally for accountability purposes?
1: So that that is that is something that the Real Estate Executive Council has taken on front and center, both nationally and we're working with as many organizations locally as we can, because this, isn't, this is, a, a moment for people of color. And we have real estate industry's ear. And so what's our message? And our message is from the real estate, I'll speak from the real estate executive counsel's perspective. Our message is you've been talking about diversity and you have failed. The jury is in it, you Whatever it is that you thought you were doing, it's, it hasn't worked. It's not working. We have people marching and protesting in the streets because you have not improved diversity, you've not improved racial inequities, and it's, it's across America, but it's also across the commercial real estate industry. So the paradigm we advocate is you need to work with the organizations for, for which this is their mission. You guys doing it, hiring chief diversity officers, having unconscious bias training or whatever it is, hasn't solved the problem. But you have organizations like REAP, like REESE, like CURE, like AREP, like uh, FIRE, and, uh, which is the Filipino Asian American Real Estate Association. That's their mission. This is our mission, is to work on these diversity issues across this industry full time. So come in, partner with us, support us, and so that we, because we were doing this, addressing this before this moment, and we will address it after this moment, because it's not a moment to us, it's not a movement to us, it's a mission. And so I have been, i have working on behalf of the Real Estate Executive Council, have been trying to coordinate with as many organizations as possible, including REAP, to, then work through the Real Estate Trade Associations, including the Real Estate Roundtable, NMHC, ICSC, ULI, NAOP, NAREIT. And I've got probably eight or ten more that I want to get to this week to say we will have a framework. And the framework involves you monitoring and being intentional, intentional about how you deal with diverse talent where you source it, how you treat it, how you sponsor it, how you advance it, how you deal with diverse entrepreneurs, how you provide capital to them, how you partner with them, how you invest in them, and how you use them as suppliers and vendors. And then also where you allocate your capital. You need to be intentional about all of these things. Know how much of it you're doing now and set goals that are higher. And then partner with organizations like REAP, and reach to to attain those goals. That's the framework that we're pushing in front of these organizations, and we're gonna work through the trade associations to get to their members, to get them to sign up, and that, that hopefully will get these firms doing more business with black entrepreneurs, giving more support to their black and minority employees, and allocating more capital to organizations and black uh, minority investment managers or developers who are working in diverse communities.
0: I think that's a a very good answer to that. You know, Ken, I I talked to Richmond about this the other day that uh, one of my biggest fears is that this will become like Haiti. You know, you got all this buzz and everything else and then all of a sudden all these commitments and everything else, but at the end of the day, the money never shows up. I think it's really gonna take something like what you're doing in order to keep the pressure, keep the you know your foot on the pedal to um, to apply the pressure to make it happen because if not, I think this could wind up being like Haiti. You know, and it's like yeah. all
1: over again. You know, so I appreciate you sharing. Well, it. you know, my 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 point is, Greece and and I personally need to be accountable to all of those firms about having a better outcome. But I also need to be accountable to you, to everybody on this call, and we, you know, get, that we we need better outcomes. To your point, this can't. We can't let this moment slip through our hands.
0: Yeah, yeah, so keep the, keep the pressure on, so we appreciate it, man. You know, we generally keep this call to about an hour, and we're at 10.59, so that's uh, perfect timing. Before we close out, is there anything else that uh, anyone else wants to ask of Kim before we, we wrap up? We did get a few calls in, and we certainly appreciate all the comments. Um, we can certainly have to back at another point in time. Okay, who's that speaking up?
3: It's Chris. Can
1: I throw one more out there? Yeah, ahead, yeah. Hey, Chris. Uh, hey, pleasure meeting you, Joel, electronically, by the way. Uh, Ken, good to see you, sir. Yeah, good to see you. I can't see you, but I hear you. Well, well, yeah. I'm sorry, my my lighting isn't too good for you guys right now, so I'm gonna go ahead and uh, <laughs> save y'all the trouble. <laughs> I just want to know, uh, real quick, what do you see as the biggest or bigger issue? Is it is it black ownership
3: in real estate, or is it? specifically just uh, black employment and, and moving up the ranks in specific companies. I mean, which would you um, think would be the uh, more pressing issue at the moment? That's
1: a great question. And, and my answer is both, but I'm, gonna, I'm really gonna answer your question. My answer to the industry is both. We, we, we need to do both. And my experience is people like Joel, are an individual entrepreneur because firms did not treat him right and did not pay him enough for him to stay in that firm and give him enough opportunity that he felt that he needed to stay there. And so the firms, we've all, almost all of us, have been in a firm, right? But we didn't see the opportunity. So many of us started rolled out and became entrepreneurs. So that's a miss on their part. But because we're now entrepreneurs. I'm trying to get the industry, if it were up to me, I would have the industry redefine diversity because they think diversity is just hiring Black or minority talent. And I need them to understand diversity is also working with the Black and minority entrepreneurs. And if if somebody, a major firm, gives Joel more business, Joel will hire more REAP graduates and more people of color. And those people will then improve their communities just by spending in their neighborhoods and creating better communities that way. And that is a form of diversity that the the, the CRE world just hasn't, they haven't understood it. They have, they, they just, they're just not there. So as much as I, I'm going to push on both, if I had my druthers, it would be, give us the money into our entrepreneurs' hands. Then we can self-determine if that makes any sense.
0: Kim, that's a big point. It's the access to capital. And one thing I really appreciated going to the uh, the pension fund meetings up there in New York State, up in Albany, is the fact that the minority fund managers are outperforming their white counterparts. But it's just so easy to give the money to BlackRock and Goldman Sachs and just give them the money. And, you know, if they perform, they do. If they don't, they don't. But it's a totally different dynamic. They can actually get better results if they put that money into the hands of smaller firms like that because they're willing to put forth the due diligence and make sure they get it right the first time because it's so important. They know they might not get another opportunity to do it. So, you know, you're you're spot on with that. So I appreciate it. Somebody just sent a text that said, amen, Ken. (laughs) So we appreciate that. Um, Uriah, I know you wanted to get in touch with Kim. Did you want to ask something before you go or do you have to take off? He might be on a bed. Hey crisis. everyone, good morning. No, I just wanted to um just to determine the best way to follow up with Mr. McIntyre for future questions. This has been a great uh discussion. So I just wanted to figure out the best way to reach out to you.
1: Um yeah, my my email is kmcintyre at reec.org dot reese.org. As Dill and most people know, I hide in plain sight, so um, I'm not that difficult to find.
2: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Okay. All right. Fantastic. All right, everybody. Um, I think that's it because I've got to get on to some other things too, but thank you so much for being part of this call today. Uh, We really appreciate it. It was enjoyable. It was insightful. And uh, King, I I thank you so much for carving out some time in your day to, to be part of it. We greatly appreciate it. And even more so... I thank you for your commitment to the minority community and helping to uh, make sure we get the access to capital and we get the access to opportunities that uh, have normally not been at our doorstep. So we thank you for that and uh, certainly appreciate all your hard work. Please keep doing it. And uh, my condolences also to um, uh, Eric Galvaro and and his wife. Um, Please make sure you send those condolences as well, because that was a very tragic situation. Um, Anything else you want to add before we end?
1: No, like like I said, um, this is a mission for Reese and for me, and we're we're partners with Reap, and we want to be partners with all of you. What we're trying to do at Reese is facilitate your ability to be closer to being a billionaire. That's that's just that simple. So let us know what we need to be doing to, 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 to make that happen. And best of luck to all of you. And again, I thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure to speak with all of you. It's great to see people in these Zoom meetings like this. It, it warms my heart.
0: All right. Appreciate that so much, Tim. Thank you so much. Fantastic opportunity and call today. And uh, thank you, everyone. We appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your week. And uh, keep in touch. We'll be back next Monday with some more exciting and full information. And uh, thank you for being a part of this call today. And, Kim, thank you always. for we'll being be in touch. All right. Time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. All right. See you later. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.